0: So tonight we're going to pick up with part two of our series of how to belong to God's body, and we're going to be specifically talking tonight about the subject of communion. So we talked uh, last month, we met at the Rassi's house, we met we talked about what? Baptist. Talked about baptism. So tonight we're going to talk about communion. So I'm going to start this way. Ask you a question. Get some interaction going here. If you were to get one one final meal, basically you would get to pick your go-to meal. If you could only have one food, not just forever, but I'm saying like one final meal. What would that go-to meal for you be? Anybody have like that go-to meal? Whether it's someplace at a restaurant. Something your mom cooks. What would it be? What's the go-to meal? What? What? Everything. Everything? That's lame. Oh, you're saying okay. Hot. You would start out with the hot dog. Okay. Like a like a homemade one or like a Portillo's one. Okay. Creighton, what about you? Chick-fil-A mac and cheese, okay. I love the specifics of it. What else? Anybody else got a? <laughs> Anybody else got a particular meal? Adults, you guys have been alive, you know, a little bit longer. You you've tasted some some delicacies, yeah. Your mom's lasagna. Your mom does strike me as someone who make a good lasagna yeah andy what instant ramen, instant ramen. wow <laughs> one last meal you'll go for the thing that cost you a quarter awesome all right very good food nice greta broccoli cheese soup from anywhere in particular okay paul i feel like you have like a top 10 list of desserts. I'm afraid to ask you what you're, you probably have like a whole top 10 list of foods, so. <laughs> okay, so if it were me, my like go-to, if I had one meal left that I could eat, easy, hands down, buffalo, chicken, horseshoe from Darcy's Pint in Springfield because there is only one place that really makes a horseshoe. Most of you are probably like, oh, I've had a horseshoe before, it's disgusting. That's because you didn't eat it at the right place. If it's any place other than Darcy's Pint in Springfield, you did it wrong, okay? Because they are the original, they know how to do it right. Everywhere else is trying to copy them, it's wrong. Yeah, so that's, uh, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would argue it, but I'm sure it might have some potential, so yeah. Yeah, you have a combo platter in mind, or what? What would it be? A combo platter. Surf and turf from the place in Austin where you're brisket and lobster, brisket and lobster. <laughs> okay, that sounds awesome, and nice, a nice high-end meal too. So I love it. So let's be honest. We as Americans, we love food. Obviously, we need food, but we love food, right? So I did some research last year alone the fast food industry earned 278 billion dollars in our country the grocery industry not surprisingly is much higher but 742 billion which means combined we as americans spent over a trillion dollars as it went to our food intake food is obviously important to us But here's the deal. Food has always been important. And I don't mean that just from a sense of survival and need to live. But it's actually really significant in the Bible as well. In fact, as I was studying for this this past week, I was kind of amazed at how the theme of food is actually a really prevalent theme all the way from start to finish in the Bible. More than that, food was considered to be something that was... uh, intimate and relational. It's a sign of of hospitality and welcome and friendship and fellowship with other people. You know, it's not just something you do to survive. It's actually something you do to thrive with other people within a community. To be invited to have food with somebody, especially in the Bible, was a sign of inviting them into friendship and welcoming them. And as such, it's no wonder that Jesus actually used food as one of the two sacraments, which by the way whenever I use that term sacraments, I just mean rituals that he gave to the church. So we talked about baptism last time and the other one is communion or also called the Lord's Supper. Uh, Those two terms go kind of interchangeably here. It's essentially, when we think about communion, it is an expression of our faith that we can not only see, but we can feel. That we can taste that we can even smell. It's tangible. So last month we talked to you about baptism. Baptism is a, a sign or it, there was a sacrament that, uh, that represents what? What did, what did we talk about with baptism? What did that represent? Why do we do it? What does it symbolize? You remember? Nobody remembers. It was a sign of your what? He's got a little pool here. What's that? What's what's the thought? Remember, baptism was a sign of your identification with Jesus, identifying with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It was an act. Baptism is an outward sign of something that has taken place internally, inward, inside of you. So then the question is, what is communion? Uh, So if we understand what baptism is, or hopefully we are starting to better understand what baptism is, then what is communion? Well, first of all, we need to understand where that term actually comes from. It's kind of an interesting term to use for what we do. But the term actually comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where it's described as we are partakers in Christ's body, partakers in Christ's blood or in the cup. That word participation there is that really famous word that we talk about a lot in our church, the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. It's an intimate word. It means communion and fellowship with one another, which is why we have adopted that term communion for this particular act. So communion then is a physical sign of our ongoing relationship with Jesus as well as Jesus' people. So think of it this way. If you're trying to think about, okay, how do I really grasp what these two things are and how they're both similar yet different from each other? Baptism is a physical sign of your union with Jesus, which is a one-time act, right? Because it's not like you get baptized multiple times over and over again because when Jesus saved you, When you were united with him by faith, that happened once. It was instantaneous. So baptism was a physical sign of your one-time union, union with Jesus. The Lord's Supper, communion, is a physical sign of your ongoing relationship or fellowship with Jesus. So if baptism was kind of that one-time thing to represent your union with Jesus, communion then is that ongoing act that shows and symbolizes your continued relationship with Him. So as whereas baptism pictures an act that was completely one directional, in other words, you were baptized into Jesus, it was something that was done to you, communion actually pictures something that is like a two-way act because fellowship is mutual, right? It's not just a one-way thing. To have a relationship is a two-way thing. So that's why we call it communion. But the question is where do we Where does this come from? Where does Jesus get this idea from? And so I think it's important for us to understand if we're gonna look at this this, uh, Lord's Supper, we have to understand that it took place on the night before Jesus' death. What were Jesus and his disciples doing? They were observing something together. What was it? What were they doing the night before he died? What? They were eating the Passover meal. So that's actually important to understanding communion. So in order to understand it, we have to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 14. If you have your Bibles or your phones, whatever it is, turn over to Exodus 14 for a moment. Oh, sorry, not Exodus 14. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Exodus chapter 12 is kind of where we get this context for what Jesus is doing at the Passover meal on the night before he dies. So just a bit of context, just to remind you, in Exodus chapter 12, the book of Exodus up to this point is the story of God beginning to bring his people out of slavery, right? So there are slaves in the nation of Egypt. Things are not going well. God raises Moses up, one of his people, to rescue them, to bring them out of Egypt. Pharaoh is playing hardball. He's not letting him go. So what is what is God doing through Moses? He's bringing plagues on the nation of Egypt, right? Things like frogs and gnats and flies and all those lovely things we enjoy in the summertime here, except on a scale that none of us could even fathom. I, I, it would be gross. It would be horrible. In fact, I think there were multiple times that those things were all dying off and they talked about the stench can you imagine all these dead frogs like just being around? That's just one thing, right? But we're on to, by the time we get to Exodus 12, we're on to the final night, uh, the final plague, that is, that God is bringing on to the nation of Egypt, which is what? What's the last plague that he's gonna bring on them? Yeah. Death of what? Every firstborn child. Every firstborn child. Okay, so this is interesting because Israel, the nation of Israel, the people there, they are just as much at risk of this plague coming upon them as they are, as this plague is to go to the Egyptians. And so what God does here in Exodus chapter 12 is he gives them instruction as to how they can remove themselves from the consequences of this particular plague. So in in, uh, Exodus chapter 12, God says this in verse 7. They've been tasked in uh, Exodus 12 to bring a young lamb into their household, a lamb without blemish. It's to live with them for two weeks, and then they're going to kill the lambs. They're going to sacrifice the lambs, and then this is what they're supposed to do in Exodus 12, verse 7 then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it they shall eat of the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts you shall let none of it remain until the morning anything that remains until the morning you shall burn in this manner you shall eat it now Going down here, verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no plague will befall to you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then he goes on to say how this is to be kept on an annual basis as a memorial to remind them of what God did for them. So this Passover meal that you hear about in uh, the Bible that the Israelites observed year after year after year pointed back to this very night where God's grace provided a means of escape. They were covered by the blood of a lamb. This is a picture of God's redemption and what it meant to be His people, all of it pictured in, ironically, a meal. This meal pictured God's saving deliverance for them. So then, this is exactly what Jesus and His disciples are doing in Luke chapter 22. Turn over there now. Luke chapter 22. Jesus and His disciples, they are observing the Passover feast. We're going to pick up in verse 14. This is what it says. And when the hour came, he, being Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until, I, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood but behold the hand of him betray- who betrays me is with me at the, on the table for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed so this is interesting because Jesus is observing the Passover feast with his with his closest disciples but then he does something different What he does here in the middle of the meal is actually not part of the Passover feast. This speech that he gives with the bread and with the the blood or with the, the, the wine, that is not normal. He's doing something different here. In fact, what he is doing is really transforming the Passover meal. And he's transforming it into something new, something that he wanted his disciples to carry on after his death. He's transforming essentially the Last Supper into the very first Lord's Supper. Why? Because a new lamb had come. One who would fully and finally take away the sins of mankind. Like the Passover lamb, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled to cover sin so that God's judgment might pass over you. And it's interesting in particular as he talks about the cup because notice how he refers to the cup. He says the cup is uh, the cup of the new what? The new covenant. The new covenant in his blood. This is something that the scriptures had talked about and foreshadowed that one day would come when God would uh, enter into a new covenant with his people where by faith he would put his spirit within their hearts. This is Jesus saying, that time has now finally come. That all who believe in me will be transformed. My my sins or my, uh, my blood will cover their sins and I, my presence, will dwell forever with them. So this is awesome. This is incredible what Jesus is doing here. But then we have to ask ourselves, practically speaking, what are we doing when we take communion? Right, we're not necessarily sitting around a table like the disciples were. So what is it actually Jesus is asking us to do when we take communion in our local churches? And by the way, notice how I said that, in our local churches, because there are places that will say, well, wherever Christians are gathered, you can can do the Lord's Supper, you can do communion. And I'd say that's actually something that's been given to local churches to do rather than just Christians in any type of setting. But what's happening with you at your churches when, you know, bread and and juice, when those things are passed in the trays or, you know, in our case, those special nice little cup things that you hear all the foil going off of whenever you try to peel them back. What actually is happening in that moment? What are you expected to do as it relates to what Jesus was doing the night of the Passover meal here? Well, I want to give you four practical considerations of what you should be doing in those moments or what communion is meant for you to do in those moments. So if you want to write them down, if you just want to think about them, that'd be great. But the first one is this, and these all have looking involved with them. So the first one is that communion is meant for you to look backwards at what Jesus has already done for you. That shouldn't come as any surprise to us, but again, we need to think about that a little bit we reflect back on what Jesus has done through, for us through His death. So when you think about holding in your hands that little piece of bread or cracker or juice, whatever it may be, you're thinking about how His death has purchased your very life, causing God to pass over your particular sins. Just as baptism is a what we would call almost a reenactment of your new life in Christ, right, picturing your death, burial, and resurrection. Communion also in many ways is a reenactment because it showcases the sacrifice of Jesus. Now it's not like an actual sacrifice that's happening because Jesus only had to be sacrificed once. There are some traditions and some religious backgrounds that would say every time you take communion it's almost like a re-sacrifice of Jesus, which we would say is nonsense. That was the whole point of Jesus dying once for all, right? Because in the Old Testament, when we talk about Old Testament sacrifices, animals had to be killed year after year, day after day to pay for sins. Jesus only had to die once. I like the way Tim Chester says it. He says that communion brings the past event of Christ's death into the present. The past becomes a present reality and we are assured Of our forgiveness. So, essentially, communion is the chance for you to remember that nothing but the blood of Jesus makes you right with God. It's nothing that you have done. It's nothing that you have earned. It is simply the blood of Christ that has paid for your sins. And because of this, you can rejoice because of your new life with God. There is now no condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, you look backwards at what Christ has already done for you, but you also look forward to what Jesus is one day bringing. Look back at what Jesus has already done, and you look forward at one day what Jesus is bringing. Community is a chance for uh, you to consider your eternal future with God, because in Matthew 26, verse 29, which is another retelling of the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, I will not drink from this cup with you until I drink it in my Father's kingdom with you. We think about Revelation 19.7, which talks about the day that Jesus returns when he comes back to this earth to set up his kingdom. The, The summons and the call that goes out in heaven is to prepare for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting? The wedding feast of the Lamb. Eternity is pictured as a marriage reception of feasting. And in fact, even in Revelation 22, we learn that the tree of life will be in eternity. The tree of life that we saw in the early chapters of Genesis where we will be able to eat of it forever. All this food language that, that comes to us that foreshadows the future. It causes for us to long for Jesus to return. And in so doing, student, it calls for you to take your eyes off the temporary nature of this world. Right? Sometimes we need set times to refocus our attention and to not be so worldly-minded, to remind ourselves that our hope rests in Jesus. Our hope does not depend on the grades that we get so that we can get into a good school for college. Our hope does not rest in the right political party being in office or in the White House. Our hope rests in Jesus and nothing else. I love the famous song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, because there's a line there that talks about how you turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth will what? They will grow strangely, Dim. They fade away in comparison to what Jesus is one day bringing. And so our earthly meal with Jesus causes us to long for the day when we will eat with Him face to face. So you look back on what Jesus has done for you, you look forward to what Jesus is one day bringing. Thirdly, you look around at all who Jesus has saved. Remember, Jesus instituted this meal with a group of His closest friends, as His closest followers. The early church, after Jesus broke bread with one another, communion is a deeply relational act. Remember, it comes from that term koinonia, which means fellowship. It speaks of our friendship and our unity and our oneness with one another. You are feasting with others who Jesus has redeemed. This is not just a personal act, right? This is an opportunity for you to be reminded of your common salvation in Jesus, no matter how different you are, right? Go to different schools, your different ages, different gender, whatever it may be, right? No matter who you are, you're united by the blood of Christ. You have the same blood that covers you and because of this communion is not just a personal act of self-reflection it's a meal that you are sharing with others now I understand it sometimes doesn't feel that way because you know sometimes you just have a little cracker and a little piece of juice or a little cup of juice you're like this doesn't really feel like a meal that I have when I'm sharing with other people and I get that but this is a chance for you to pause and reflect and realize other people are doing this with you This is a meal that you're sharing with people that symbolizes your common relationship together. In fact, I love, again, another way that Tim Chester puts this. He says this, when you're taking communion, don't close your eyes. Don't close your eyes, in fact, open them and look around the room. See the body of Christ formed by the shared experience of the body of Christ, right? This is an opportunity for you to remember that you're a part of something much bigger than yourself. God did not just save you for your own personal relationship with Him. He brought you into a family. He brought you into a community. And so this act that you do, baptism, that's one thing, right? Like, you're still doing it in front of the church, but it's symbolizing your oneness with Christ and baptism, but communion shows not only your relationship with Jesus, but your community that you share Jesus with. That's awesome, and we don't often think about it that way. And so we need to remember to look behind us as what Jesus has already done, to look forward to what Jesus is one day bringing, to look around us at all of who Jesus has saved. And then fourthly, we need to look inwardly at what Jesus is revealing. This is really interesting. If you have your Bible still, jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You know, there's not actually a lot written about communion and the Lord's Supper in the the New Testament. Makes it a little bit hard to kind of be definitive on some of our practices, but I think it's interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this in verse 27, chapter 11, verse 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread, Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord let a person examine himself and then uh, himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself now the context of examining yourself and eating in an unworthy manner. That's kind of an interesting thing. What is Paul talking about here? Now, I typically thought that this meant to take time to briefly reflect and consider any sin in your life and to, you know, confess it. Basically, turning uh, turning communion into like a confessional booth, right? Any sins I can think of in my life, this is the time to just confess them before God. And while that's certainly an appropriate thing to do at times, I don't think that's primarily what Paul has in mind here. And I don't think that's primarily what communion is meant for you to do. Because when you do this, there's a temptation for you to, uh, to think to yourself, I'm an unworthy participant, right? If you're, if you're going to take time to start confessing all of your sins, you're going to start to think to yourself, well, I am unworthy. I'm not worthy to partake of this. But here's the deal. That's the point. None of you are worthy. It's Jesus' blood that makes you worthy to partake of it in the first place. Paul's concern is not unworthy participants. Paul's concern is unworthy participation. What he means by that in the context of 1 Corinthians is this was a church, in this particular letter, they struggled with unity and love for one another. And it's fascinating as you read this entire letter, you realize they were a selfish people. They were often looking out for their own interests. They were divided. They were essentially in the context of this chapter here, when they were observing the Lord's Supper, the rich and the wealthy were kind of going ahead and they were just eating up all the food and there would be nothing left for everybody else. Seems really weird. We don't think of it in that way, but that's what was happening here. They had little regard for other people in the body. And so what does this mean for examining yourself and participating in an unworthy manner? Listen to this quote from Greg Allison because I think think he's getting close to what the idea is here. The self-assessment is not for searching out remaining sins. These should be confessed and repented of promptly not accumulated and dismissed quickly and inconsiderately before sharing in the Lord's Supper. So what he's saying there is, listen, your time for repentance and confessing sin, you should be doing that in everyday life already. He's saying, rather, the self-examination is specifically for the purpose of detecting broken relationships, division-causing behavior, disrespect. And mistreatment of brothers and sisters in Christ. Because think about it communion is about sharing our oneness with Jesus together wouldn't it be sending a mixed message if you have bitterness and resentment and broken relationships with people in the church and yet you're communing? That sends a mixed signal doesn't it? What This is kind of going similar to what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, where he says, listen, if you're offering a sacrifice at the altar and you realize that you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, he says, stop what you're doing, go and be reconciled to that person first, and then you can come and offer your offering to the Lord point of this is, you you partake in an unworthy manner when you are harboring bitterness and disunity in your heart towards other Christians in the body of Christ. So, more than anything, this is a time of reflection for you to consider how you might be contributing to the disunity among God's people in the church body. That might be friends. Right, other Christian friends among you who you're not getting along with. There's something that happened and you haven't done everything in your power to make things right. Or, I'm going to get really real with you for a moment here. Maybe it's with your parents. Maybe there's some fighting and arguing and bitterness going on with you and your parents. Guess what? This qualifies in that as well. Because they're just as much a part of the body of Christ, assuming they're Christians as well. That's contributing to the disunity. Paul's saying, no, listen, examine yourself. See, if there is any way that you need to contribute to bring about greater union, then, then absolutely enjoy the communion and share with it together with your fellow brothers, sisters in Christ. Seek peace first. Until then, don't partake if there is disunity or relationships that are broken that you need to help men. So, look back at what Jesus has done for you. Look forward to what Jesus is one day bringing. Look around you at all who Jesus has helped save and then look inwardly at what Jesus might be revealing to you. Now, as we wrap up, There's one last question I think that I want to consider because I think it's important for us. It's the question of when, or maybe even the question of who should take communion. Because I think a lot of us are curious about, well, when am I ready for communion? Is there a certain age or is there a certain spiritual maturity as to when I should do communion? If you grow up in certain churches, they like prepare you for it with classes and you have your first communion together But based on everything that I've talked about here so far, who should partake in communion based on what I said? What do you think? Who should partake in communion? I promise this is not a trick question. What? The church, which is what? Who makes up the church? What? Believers. Absolutely. So first and foremost, you should be a Christian before taking communion because, as we talked about, communion is participation in the blood of Christ. It is participation in what Jesus has done for you. And so if you're not a Christian, you're, you haven't partaken of that, right? Jesus' blood. Is not covering for your sins. It would be confusing. Like baptism, it's also not salvific, right? Baptism doesn't save you. You're not saved the moment you go into water and come back out again. That's not the moment of your salvation. In the same way, taking of communion doesn't make you saved, it doesn't make you a Christian, it doesn't make you holier. It's a sign of your close friendship and connection with Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, you lack that. So the question then is still for the person who is a Christian, when do you take communion? And I think there's often disagreement over this, but I believe that the pattern is well established in the Bible that somebody repents of their sins, they put their faith in Jesus, and then what's usually the next step after that? For somebody who's repented and believed in Jesus, what's usually the next step? What's that? Baptism, right? So, I was fascinated when I was looking at the pattern of the early church in Acts chapter two. We're gonna talk about this a little bit next month as well, but in Acts chapter two, if I can actually turn the page in my Bible. In Acts chapter two, verse 40, this is Paul, or Peter speaking to this group of unbelievers, and it says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers." That breaking of bread there, I believe, is actually just the simple way that the church referred to of their partaking in communion in the Lord's Supper together. So notice there, the people believed, they were baptized to show their new identification with Jesus, and then they were a part of the life of the church, which included listening to the preaching of God's Word to fellowshipping with other believers, to praying with them and partaking in communion, the Lord's Supper together. Side note, those terms added to the church and devoted to the church are gonna be discussed next month. So you're gonna wanna kinda hang on to those for next month. But I do believe that order is important. We enter the, the visible church through baptism and express our ongoing belonging to the church through communion. I'll put it this way, kind of with a final illustration for you. So last month, I kind of gave you the, the silly illustration of how a jersey identifies you with a particular team, right? Justice didn't really help me out with that very much. But you remember that when you put on a jersey, it identifies you with a particular allegiance. Now, this is gonna be a little cheesy here, but say I was to put on a a baseball jersey, naturally a St. Louis Cardinals jersey. Imagine me trying to, actually not putting on the jersey. I haven't put on the jersey yet, but imagine me trying to walk into the locker room, trying to participate in special team meetings and to enjoy close friendship with my teammates on the team, but I don't have the uniform. That would seem kind of strange and kind of an anomaly, wouldn't it? Because I want all the benefits that come from being on the team without wanting to publicly identify myself with the team. Does that make sense? I mean, it would be strange. It would send mixed signals to to the team, to the people in the organization to the watching world and it would even send mixed signals to myself in the same way guys baptism shows your union with Jesus and then communion shows your ongoing relationship with him it's the benefits that come from that ongoing relationship It's a conversation I've had to explain to our girls when they went to partake in communion obviously they think it's cool that you get you know little snacks in the middle of the service But if if this is you, if you're partaking in communion but you're not baptized first, I would encourage you to to pause and to hold off on continuing participating in communion until you have first publicly identified yourself with Jesus, publicly identifying your new life with him. And I believe that when you do this, if you do this, it will make communion all the more sweeter to you as a result. So, in conclusion, we'll wrap up here. You've been great listening. I've been blessed by this site the last couple of weeks because I, I, I'll be honest. that Even though I've been in ministry for a lot of years and have done a lot of Bible study, communion up until really the last few weeks has still felt at times a little fuzzy to me. You know, I used to think that baptism was this awesome time of celebration and then communion was kind of this somber, serious time. But the reality is that communion is just as much of a celebration as baptism is. It's rejoicing in our ongoing relationship with Jesus, an expression of his friendship towards us a catalyst for strengthening our faith in His promises, a grace gift for weak faith, a beacon of hope that Jesus is coming back again one day, and a visual reminder to everyone of the church's unity because of His great sacrifice. Because of all those things, I hope I've just been able to give you a little more of a taste of why communion is so awesome because God has been gracious to give us something that we can not only listen to with God's word, but he's given us an actual act that we can see, that we can smell, that we can touch, and that we can even taste together. That student has a reason to rejoice. So let's pray and I'll talk about the rest of our evening together.